As we come to Deuteronomy, Moses, where we left off back in chapter 9, had reminded them that God's doing good things for you, but not because you're a good person. And he's not multiplying you because you're better than everybody else. That's what he's saying to Israel in the context. He's like, no, in fact, you guys are very sinful. When I was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, you built a golden calf and worshipped it. You were wicked. You did wickedly. Then he says, and then when we came to Kadesh Barine, it was time to enter to the promised land. You guys wouldn't enter in. So Moses had just stopped off saying, don't say because I'm so smart that I've got all this increase and I've multiplied all my wealth. Because you... Because God gave you favor, that's why you have it. And because he chose, made promises to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he keeps his word. But it's not because you're something special. You're sinful, you're wicked, he said, and you didn't enter in because of unbelief, so you just saved by grace, essentially what he said. So as we pick it up from that thought process, again, it's Moses talking to the next generation of Israel about to go into the promised land. The older generation has died off. He's on the east side of the Jordan River, and he's given his final message to the generation that's going to lead the way. And they could be as old as 59 years of age, right? Because it was everyone over 20 didn't go in from 40 years before. But so they could have been 19 and made the cut, and now they're 59. So we keep that in mind. And, of course, there's children that were born in the wilderness, the 40-year wandering, and that's our background. So chapter 10, verse 1 says this. So at that time, the Lord said to me, again, the context was, Mount Sinai, what went wrong there with the Ten Commandments. At that time, the Lord said to me, Hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. And I'll write on the tablets the words which were on the first tablets. And that, of course, is the Ten Commandments. Which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. Remember, Moses broke the Ten Commandments when he saw them worshiping the golden calf. Verse 3. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tablets of stone like the first, went up the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand, and he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain, put the tablets in the ark, which I had made, and there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. Now, the children of Israel journeyed from the wells of Ben-Shakan to Mosarah, where Aaron died, Moses' brother, high priest, and where he was buried. And Eleazar, his son, ministered as priest in his stead, or in his place. From there they journeyed to Gugadah, and from Gugadah to Jotbata, a land of rivers of water. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless him in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. As at the first time I stayed in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord also heard me at that time, and the Lord chose not to destroy you. Remember, Moses interceded for them. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, begin your journey before the people, that they may go and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. So Moses is still recounting their beginnings from 40 years before at Mount Sinai, where the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, was expanded to become the Mosaic covenant to the descendants of Abraham, and now they're all in. The nation of Israel is birthed out of bondage of slavery. From 70 people, they become a couple thousand people. God has kept his word. 400 years have gone by, and he's preparing them to go into the land he had promised their forefathers over 400 years before. In this passage of Scripture, something just jumps out at us apart from, well, everything in Deuteronomy jumps out at us, but really gets my attention is verse 8 where it says, at that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi. Now, we've seen a lot of this in the book of Leviticus, 
Exodus and Numbers, we've been going through the books of Moses. We've seen how the Levites, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, remember the 12 tribes, it's Abraham is the father of faith that God made the promises to. Isaac, the son of promise, is his son. Then Jacob is the grandson. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel has 12 children through four wives, if you will. And these are the 12 tribes or the 12 sons of Jacob. Levi was one of those 12. And hundreds of years later, when they're a nation coming out of Egypt at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and going forward, there is the priesthood service. There is the tabernacle as the central place of worship with Moses covered. It was the Ark of the Covenant in which the Ten Commandments, the second set, went into, eventually with Aaron's budding rod and the jar of manna. And they went in there, and it was covered in gold with the cherub and the angels over it, as God described them. And that was in the holiest of holies in the tabernacle. And then there's the holy place. So it's a big tent. One third of it is the most holy place. And then the other part is the holy place with the showbread, altar of incense, and the lampstand. And the priests needed, there were priests that were set apart by God to do the service there. And they were the Levites. We've also seen in the, the allotment of the land, which we saw in Numbers, that when they came into the land, the Levites would not get a territory for them. So the 12 tribes of Israel were spread out in the promised land. And eventually when Joshua took them in the land, after they conquered the land, they cast lots. So Gad's over here, Asher's over there, Judah, Simeon, half-tribe of Manasseh on the other side of the river. They all got their, their lots in their land, except Levi. Now, of course, we know that God took the 12, set apart Levi and the descendants, and then he split up Joseph's tribe into Manasseh and Ephraim. So you still have 12. So it's really 12 minus 1 equals 11, but then you subdivide Number 11, Joseph, you get two more tribes, the subdivision based upon the grandchildren. So now you have the clean 12 plus and one, the Levites. And as they marched through the wilderness, the Levites who are there at the tabernacle in the middle, they are, of course, subdivided by their three subdivisions, Marites, Gershonites, and Kohathites. And the Kohathites were the descendants like Moses and Aaron and his family. They carried the Ark of the Covenant on the poles, whereas the Gershonites and Marites they had the carts to do the heavy lifting of the, the tent, the pegs, the, the, the tabernacle, the wood, the outer court, the, the, the washing basins, the altar, the bronze altar where they did the animal sacrifices, which of course spoke of Christ. So it was quite a process and quite an organization of the Levites and what they did. And so here Moses is recounting how he, God set apart the Levites for their service. And so when they came in the promised land, we saw this, they don't get a territory because God wanted them spread out amongst the people. Their influence of handling the word of God, teaching the word of God, and being spiritual leaders amongst the people, they were spread out. They were spread out throughout the territories on the east side, on the other side of the Jordan River, modern Jordan, and on the east side, and then on the west side, all modern Israel. God spread them out like the church, and we talked about this. It was a whole application of being like salt and light, that they'd have an influence in their communities, that there'd be... If you had a spiritual question, you don't have to go 140 miles to the land of the Levites to ask this question about the law, but there's Levites that live within you amongst the common land, and you can go, go ask Ibram uh, and ask him what the deal is on this passage from the Torah. That's what you could do. That's the way God designed it. They were the spiritual leaders. And in this passage, we're being reminded that they were the spiritual leaders. It was very special to be a Levite. Now, there was kind of no choice in it. For example, Jeremiah the prophet, his father was a priest, so Jeremiah was born a Levite. A difficult time, right, before the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem, take them all away. When everyone's rebelling against the Lord and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and are living in sin and living worse than the people that came before them. 
And maybe all his peer group was like, why even try serving the Lord? We should just party. We should just have a good time, eat, drink, and be merry, for it's the end of the world anyways, because Nebuchadnezzar's coming. But Jeremiah was a priest uh, of a priestly family. And so he might go to his dad like, Dad, like, why can't I just go to the party and have fun with all the other guys? Because no one even cares anymore. It's like, it's all doom and gloom around here. Dad's like, well, you're a Levite, and you're going to serve. So you didn't have a choice that way. In other words, like, you don't do your father's vocation because that's his vocation. Like, if your grandfather's a fireman, and then you choose to be a fire, your dad's a fireman, you choose to be a fireman, that's your choice. Like, no one made you do that. <laughs> but in this covenant with the nation of Israel, a Levite is a Levite is a Levite is a Levite. That is what you do. And whether you thought, well, some Levites woke up like, it's great to be a Levite. Wow, it's awesome. Well, I'm a Levite. Walked by, yo, what's up? We're Levites, man. It's like a letterman's jacket. It's like, we're Levites. We're varsity around here. That's really how you should have felt. But then the other people, like, being raised in a Christian home, and they go to Calvary Chapel High School, they don't want to go to Calvary Chapel High School. The grandparents pay their way to go there, and they resent being there. Say, I hate this Christian school. I want to smoke pot and party and sleep around. So they find a way to get expelled and go live a bad life, and they end up in jail or end up doing whatever they want to do, and they chose that. That was their choice. And they resented that their parents got saved in the tent days. They resented that their parents talked about Pastor Chuck or enjoyed Maranatha music and stuff like that. You know, we all make our choices. If you're a Levite, you're a Levite. So you had to decide, am I stoked to be a Levite or am I bummed to be a Levite? That's what you had to think. But you didn't, you were born in that calling. You were born into that calling. Now, when we think about what's kind of the equivalent of Levites for the church, because that's where we're going with this. Jesus is the head of the church. Of course, all believers that were gathered were the body of Christ. We're speaking the truth in love. God's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers for the equipping of the church for the work of the ministry. So we're equipping you, I'm being equipped, to fulfill our calling with the Lord. God's given each one who's born again through faith in Jesus Christ. He's given them a spiritual gift. He's given them gifts and a calling. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, that you should go and bear fruit. So we have a calling from the Lord. And we have unique gifts that give us the right flow and function. But it's critical that we have a function because the Bible tells us that as each part of the body supplies its portion, the body is built up into maturity. Now, there's, uh, there's parts where we serve in structure. There's parts where we just serve behind the scenes, don't even know what we're praying for the church. There's people that come to church. They're not involved in any organized ministry thing. They're, they don't have to be here at a certain time to do a certain task. But they come here and they're looking for new faces to welcome those people. Or they get the prayer list that we send out on Thursdays, and they don't just look at it once or discard it, but they look at it, and they print it, and they pray over it throughout the week. Or when we do, we print out, we give you the copy of the missions that we're doing all over the world, they actually take it home, and they pray through it. So they take that, and they pray through it. That's what they do. And we, we don't, that's their gift. Their gift is praying. And there's people that give substantially, and they trust the, the sowing of it. And that's their gift. They give. They, they can't give the time or the energy, but they can give the resources. And that's what they do. But we're told from the New Testament that each parts, each individual element of the body of Christ, particularly 1 Corinthians 12, talks about the body being like the eyes, the toes, the nose, and the ears. We all have a place because Jesus is the head. And we're all being built up together. So the Levites, they were the salt and light in their culture. The church is the salt and light in our culture. 
But when you come back to these statements, these are very unique if you think about it. So let's think about this. When you serve the Lord, when you make yourself available to the Lord, when you're releasing funds to the ministry of the Lord, when you're releasing your time and your energy, when you make time to intercede for other people and you're praying for different needs and whatnot. He says this, the Lord separated them. And just know this, we're separated. The church is always going to be separated. We're his bride. And the Levites were to minister to the Lord and bless his name. So they're to minister to the Lord and they're blessing his name to this day. So because of this, the Levi has no portion or inheritance with the brethren because the Lord is their inheritance. See, Christ is our inheritance because we're we're told in 1 Peter that we're all a royal priesthood. And if you use that understanding and the New Testament uses it, the Holy Spirit uses it, since we all have a place where being built a spiritual house, that's the context there in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're a priesthood. The Holy Spirit literally took the idea of the Levitical priesthood and applied it to the church and said, we're stones being built together as a holy house to the Lord. So in the New Testament, we get the visual and comparison of a human body twice for the church, and we all have a place, and then we get the stones there in 1 Peter. The Lord is our inheritance. Jesus is our inheritance. And we've been talking about this. No one, you can get axed out of a will. You can be finagled out of a will. You can lose treasure in a probate hearing, right? Like a lot can go wrong. If you're waiting for an inheritance, you may never get it from men. It might be spent before the person passes away. But the Lord was the Levite's inheritance. They served the Lord day to day their entire life. From the womb to the tomb, as they say. And whatever they felt like they were missing out on in possessions or things they could do, the Lord was always their inheritance. Always their inheritance. Peter and John had this in mind, and the apostles, when they said, we've given up everything for you. And Jesus is like, fair enough, but... I tell you, whatever you've given up in this life, for me, there's more for you in this life than that and so much more in the life to come. And we need to be reminded of that. In a world of takers, takers take. And there's things people might take. And I talked about this last Tuesday. I literally taught last Tuesday that if everything you belong, everything you have belongs to the Lord and someone takes it, they didn't take it from you. They took it from the Lord. And that's a real acid test of where your heart's at. And I mentioned this earlier, but lo and behold, we made a large gift to a foreign country, and it's being held right now in transit. And Sam's my witness. I was not happy about it, but we're like, well, let's just pray about it, because it's going for ministry. It's going for a church plant in a faraway land. And I was like, "Hmm, okay, well, first thing I did was pray. Like, Lord, okay, we've been flagged on this, and they're freezing the funds, the assets. And the Lord's like, well, what would you say Tuesday night? I said, it's your money. It's your problem. Right. It's my money. It's my problem. They've frozen my money and my assets, not yours. Isn't it's not yours, is it? No, 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 it's not mine. <laughs> yeah, they've frozen your assets. So would you want to release those assets so we can get back to the ministry of planting that church in that faraway land? And the person who's supposed to receive the assets didn't get him. He's like, oh, my goodness, you know, like, oh, what a bummer because we're excited because assets are coming for ministry. And I said, it's all good. It's the Lord's money. And he knows how to release it or let it go or replace it. See, if someone stole a million dollars from me, what is that? God owns everything on the planet, in the universe. It's never about the money. It's about the heart. So our inheritance is the Lord. And the possessions get left behind. 
Truly, the only thing that matters is that Christ is our inheritance. And our treasures are stored up in heaven through the acts of faith and obedience that we fulfill in time, space, and matter. I've been reading about all the monarchs for the last year and a half, and I tell my wife, you know, you know this happened with Queen Victoria. This happened with William III, the Kaiser, and all this and that. And this is, oh, Peter the Great, you didn't want to know all his stomach problems, and he went over Europe trying to find relief from his pain, and, and he, you know, he owned all the wealth in Russia, but he couldn't find relief from his intestinal pains, and Catherine the Great had all kinds of pain. He's like, it's kind of depressing. And I said, yeah, because it just shows like, and especially like Nick, Nicholas and Alexander, the last czar, where they, you know, they got wiped out by the Bolsheviks, which was one of the Telling novellas of all time for American, for world history is the last czar in the Bolshevik Revolution, but you can own everything and lose it. And my whole point is like, Peter the Great could rule the world and change the world and build a naval fleet where there was nothing, but in the end, he's going to die in his 50s in great pain. And I remember I told you in reading Robert Massey's book, the Pulitzer Prize winning book on his life, Peter the Great, who was God fearing, last thing he wrote is, I give to, and he dropped dead. The most powerful man ever in the history of Russia was trying to give something away with his last breath, and he dropped dead. Our inheritance is the Lord. The Levites is us, man. Our inheritance is the Lord. It should all belong to the Lord because Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our manna. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the light of the world. He's everything to us. So that's our joy. We're the Levites. You might be entrusted with things. I was talking with Jack about this before service. You know, God grinds men and then entrusts them with certain things as they learn the lessons. You're women too. You're faithful in little things. You get more things. But in the end, it's all the Lord's because it gets left behind. Our inheritance is the Lord. So before we move on, let's just think this one more time. We're like the Levites. We're the priesthood. And Jesus is our great high priest. Our inheritance is the Lord. And everything else, we just let it flow. It's fluid. Fluid, though. It's just fluid. And it's about the heart. And God provides. I mean, Jack had us singing Psalm 23. It's such a beautiful song. Well, we were singing at Psalm 23, David's song. The Lord is my shepherd. He's got this. And ultimately, we're at a table with goodness anointing our head for all eternity. We're like the Levites, man. It's all the Lord. Our inheritance is Jesus Christ. Our inheritance, I think, of all the church history where evil men and governments and, and wicked people took stuff from believers. And you just have to let it go. You just have to let it go and make that an offering to the Lord. That's a good mindset for us to have going forward in our human experiences. And look what it says, the last thing about this, the Lord is our inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. God made a promise that the Levites would serve the Lord. It sounds like a good thing, right? Like it's a promise of God. In the context, it's a positive thing, right? God promised Levi that he's going to serve the Lord. And it's a good thing. Hey, God promised it. Better than the land flowing with milk and honey, God promised you that you're going to serve the Lord. You're going to stand before the Lord. You're going to minister to the Lord. And there's nothing better than that. So I just encourage all of us just to continue to be open, praying, seeking, and open and pliable to new adventures, new steps of faith, new vision with the Lord in our life for how he wants to use us. Maybe he wants you to step up and be more involved in serving in the church. Maybe he wants you to go out on adventurous things that you've never thought to do before. Maybe you'll usher in the new stadium for Great Glorious Crusade in L.A. this year. Why not? After COVID 2021, why not? 
sign up, go to the training class, go, go be there, man. Go watch your Greg Laurie's crusade at the new stadium. Think outside the box. Because I've mentioned this, God showed me a couple months ago, you're sowing well, but I want you to cast your nets farther. I want you to have a bigger vision. Start grabbing stuff from other ministries, what they're doing, and jump into those things as well. And I'll give you all you need for it. And that's exactly what he's doing for us in this church right now. Let's get a bigger vision. I just wrote down a little board in here. I erased what was up there a couple months ago, and I just wrote down the prayer of uh, Jabez, you know, Lord, expand our boundaries. Open it up, and may we be a blessing to everybody, not cause evil for anyone and hurt. I just wrote it down the other day. See who, see who noticed it, but now you know because I mentioned it. But that's our heart. Let's expand. Let's expand. We're the Levites. The church are the Levites. In that sense, we get to stand before the Lord, know the Lord, be discipled by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and go out and love on people. Now we read on. So verse 12 says this. Now Israel, what does verse 12... Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Of course, it's for our good to obey the Lord. Verse 14. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that's in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, and you above all people as it is to this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. What a powerful stretch of scripture right there. Moses going like, almost like when parents are exhorting their kids, he's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He's done everything for you. He's basically saying, so make really good decisions when I'm gone. He says, your eyes have seen it. You were 70 people 400 years ago. We're descendants of 70 people, and now there are millions. It's like God has kept his word. Now, the heart of the Lord, we see this. In verse 18, he administers justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the stranger, give him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. We've been talking about these things a fair bit. But it's the heart of God to have empathy and compassion toward all humanity. Jesus was constantly, we see in the text of the Gospels, Jesus was moved with compassion. And as the 12 apostles were with him, doing ministry with him, with his feeding the 5,000, or forgiving the woman caught in adultery, he was constantly teaching them through his words and actions, compassion and empathy upon humanity. Not just humanity that responds to the Lord favorably, but even humanity that doesn't. For example, the 10 lepers. Jesus healed 10 lepers. As they began to go, they were healed. And one came back. But that didn't stop him from healing the other nine. That's a 10% return in that sense. One came back and thanked him. What do you say, too? Where are the others? But didn't stop him from ministering. He fed the 5,000. The next day he said, you just do this because you want a free meal. But didn't stop him from feeding the 5,000. He still taught them that their fathers ate manna, but he's the bread of life, which the manna spoke of. And he's better than the manna they ate. Their fathers did. 1,500 years before in the wilderness wandering. 
Jesus has always moved with compassion and empathy toward people. And it's so important that our hearts are very tender and empathetic toward all humanity. No matter how far gone in sin, no matter how far down in the despairs and the depths of life and all that can come with it, we have to be moved with empathy. Our first reaction to fallen humanity must be, in Jesus' name, empathy and compassion. I believe my life has been a journey of learning this. I believe so much as I'm sitting and reflect on things God's done in my life, he's been teaching me this, and this is something we want to learn. I don't want to step into eternity with any sort of prejudices or racism against anybody or dispositions against people because they fell into sin this way or fell into sin that way. I want to be with the heart of Jesus so broken on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, and loving them to the last breath when I say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When I worked minimum wage in Vermont 25 years ago, I never thought of Eastern European immigrants. I've told you, all those maids were Eastern European immigrant women. And they're different. The Eastern Euros are different, you know, and if you're one, you understand the Slavic people and beyond, you know? I mean, Sam's Eastern European, he's Romanian. He's an immigrant who grew up during communism. It's just a world I didn't understand. And they were kind of like my boss, they tell me what to do, and I didn't like it. I didn't like. Eastern European women who didn't speak English as a first language tell me, pick up the dirty dishes. I did not like that. I did not at all. Sounds like Dr. Seuss. I did not. I cannot. I will not. You know, like, I didn't like that. But it kind of softened my heart toward understanding, like, well, I'm just like them. I'm getting paid $4.40 an hour to deliver the food, and they got to change the beds. Those were things I had to learn. And I'll tell you, to this day, I think so much learning Spanish was just to appreciate the Latin culture just so I wouldn't have racism against it. Not that I ever did, because I don't think I ever did. But you don't learn the language and then not like the people of the language and the culture. So when I go to Nicaragua and Costa Rica and Chile and these other places, that, and when I see people, and I see people doing all the jobs that no one wants to do, and they're here legally or illegally, I, have, I appreciate what they're doing. Do you ever do landscaping on a hot day in Vista? I did. I don't like landscaping. It's hot. It's dirty. And whenever I see people like immigrants... Illegal or legal, doing the hard work. I was like, man, I just, I, I value them. You know, a couple months ago, like, they, the, our guy was there doing the work. I was like, hey, can you guys rip up this dead plant right here? They, the, the youngest kid, like a 16-year-old kid, Latino kid, they're like, he's out there doing it. I just walk up to him and gave him cash. I said, thank you. You're important. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's how we have to be. And I'm not saying, like, like, I'm Superman. I'm just saying, like, this is what you have to learn. And now so much of my heart is toward Africa. And God's been teaching us all to be empath, like to have love for people. You know, the COVID thing, you see how much people don't like Asians now for some reason because of COVID. I would never blame anyone for COVID except maybe the people who like made it or whatever. I'm not going to blame a people group for COVID. Why would we? We just can't be that way. God loves the stranger. He doesn't say the legal or the illegal stranger. He just loves the stranger because you are strangers. I showed Alex Lopez the picture of my, fa- my grandfather, my great-grandfather, Hokin, from Norway. It's one of those photos, like the Civil War photos. It's the 1800s. He's at a military academy in Norway, and he's sitting there with the hat on and the sword. He's a teenager. That great-grandfather of mine came to the United States not speaking a word of English. Came to Ellis Island without his wife and kids, sent the money back. Three years later, she comes with all the kids, gets on a train there at Ellis Island, goes to Illinois not speaking a word of English. I asked my dad last week, Pop, when you talked to Hokin, your grandfather, Grandfather Hokin, did you ever have a conversation? Go, oh, no, he, he didn't really speak English very well. He just spoke Norwegian. It was very heavy accented. 
It's like, wow. But my pop's dad, Fred, who grew up here because his, got, his dad immigrated here, spoke perfect English and he served the U.S. in the World War II. And his grandson, my dad, the grandson of Hogan, speaks perfect English because my dad is still speaking English over at Sunrise right now. Right? Somebody came here from somewhere else and probably spoke another language when they came. For almost all of us in this room. Somebody came here from somewhere else and they spoke probably another language in most cases. And here we are. See, we cannot harden our heart toward the strangers. That's what God says, because you were strangers. That's what he said to Israel. You were strangers. And you're like, when you, like, when you travel to foreign countries and you get off the plane, it's like, it's so intimidating. When I got off the plane in El Salvador and the people weren't there to help me, they didn't show up when they're supposed to be there. And I'm sitting in this airport after a red-eye flight from LAX in El Salvador. And I was going like, wow, I am a completely, I'm such a different person for this society and this culture right now. I did have pretty good Spanish, and it worked at that time, but it's like, still does, but it's so intimidating. So when you look around Orange County, you look around Southern California, you see all these people from all over the world, man, have a heart of empathy and see them the way God sees them. Let the first thought be a good thought. Some cultures, you smile, they don't want to look at you. That's how the Russians are. I can walk all around Disney, Novgorod, or Moscow, and be like, yo, what's up? Russians just like, niet. They have the head down, walking straight. Most Russians do not make eye contact. They don't want to talk to you, and they don't want you talking to them. That doesn't mean God doesn't love them. Jesus didn't die on the cross for them, because both are true. He loves them, and he died on the cross for them. This is a powerful passage, because God administers justice for the foreigner, the stranger. I think that's a really good word in 2021 for us, in a pluralistic world where national identities are muddled. We just can never forget that God loves humanity. He loves the widow. You know, there's so much of what we do in Sowing Bountifully. We immediately, we always have a heart for widows. We're doing a lot to support widows right now that were formerly pastor's wives in foreign countries and in America. If you were Calvary Chapel pastor's wife and your husband died, chances are you don't have anything left when he left. Maybe, maybe he did have a life insurance policy. So far, I haven't heard of any. Maybe he did have some long-term 401k stuff. I haven't heard of any like that in the Calvary movement. Okay? So maybe it's there. It could be there. So we get to bless. With our blessings, we get to bless widows. And I feel there's a blessing on us because we do bless widows. That's who we are. So praise the Lord. And then, of course, the orphans. We do a lot with orphanages. We have sown bountifully with orphans as long as we've been in church. We... You know, the foster care, Camp Allendale, these other things. This is who we are. We're not here about a self-serving faith that makes us feel better about ourselves, what we're doing. We are here to lose our life at the cross, to press into Jesus Christ, to be full of the Spirit, and to live Jesus Christ in the most practical way with that which we can touch with our hands and that which we can touch with our finances. That's who we are. We're an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, and we reach out to orphans and widows and to missionaries and all these people over the world because we can and God's called us to. Isn't that wonderful? When I read a passage like this, I'm not sitting here as a pastor going like, wow, what was it like to do this stuff? We do this stuff. I always forget to pray for the offering. I can't remember the last time I prayed for the offering. So Lord, thank you for the offerings. See, we just, it's all the Lord. Like I said, as fast as we can give it away, God's given more. Cast the net, cast the net. You say, where it's coming from? It's not just coming from you. It's just random. It just keeps coming. I mean, half my job is figuring out, praying over who to give it to and working with Sam to release it. This is who we are. And when the trumpet sounds, this is who you want to be.
whether you're here with us or somewhere else where it's just you. Your giving is not limited to what we're doing. We need to have a heart all the time for the fatherless, the widow, and the stranger. And can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. All right, let's read on. Chapter 11. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Know today that do not speak with your children who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, his greatness and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all his land, what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. What he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, their households, their tents, and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen every great act of the Lord which he did. So here he's reminding them of those things that happened early on in the journey and throughout the journey. Because again, think of someone being 59 years old, they're leading the way going into the promised land. And so they've had kids, and now their kids are maybe in their 20s, like our kids might be in some cases. And he's saying, your kids were too young to remember when the Red Sea coagulated and then wiped out Pharaoh. But you weren't. You're 59, and you remember very well all those chariots washing up on the side of the the sea there. You remember how terrifying it was that day when the ground opened up and swallowed all 270 people. You, you remember well. Now, your kids don't remember that. They kind of remember it. It was kind of like 9-11. They kind of remember it when they were younger, right? They don't remember that day, but you remember that day. You saw that day. See the difference between adult memory and child memory? See, 9-11 for me, I can picture it all as they, my friends call and say, turn on the news at 6.30 and seeing it all unfold before our eyes. I remember it all as an adult. Our kids remember it younger, especially someone like Luke, the younger kids, right? So that's what this is like. He's saying, you, you, you saw it. You know what happened. And in this case, how God did this for you. Your kids don't remember it. They were too young. But you remember it, so make sure when you go on the land, you lead by example for your kids that are now young adults, that you don't lose track of who you are and what you've seen and what God's done for you. Don't stop leading the way. That's what he's saying. You saw the great acts the Lord has done. And by the way, since most of us are a little bit older here, we got young people obviously too, but isn't it nice to sometimes just reflect back on how many times the Lord delivered you? How he provided for you? How he came through? Not one promise failed. Not one. The shoes didn't wear out. Our clothes, our garments didn't wear out. All the promises are yes and amen in Jesus' name. It's so good to look back on God's faithfulness to us of the things we can remember of his mighty acts, but how many mighty acts did he do that we don't even remember? Or how many mighty acts did he do for us that the angels looking out for us did that we don't even, we're not even aware of? And since Hebrews says there's so great a cloud of witnesses cheering us on, and we know that angels are ministering spirits that minister to those who are saved by grace, we can't even fathom how many times the angels, and we're not just talking a wonderful life here, right? The Christmas movie. Like, We're talking angels looking out for you and me and how they protected us from this or protected us from that and they led us through that. How they opened this door like Peter getting out of the jail when he's going to be executed that morning. How many doors did he open for us that we don't even know but the Lord did it or his angels watching over us did it? The mighty acts of the Lord and I confess and we confess together that God has been good and he has watched over us and he has kept us all this way and he's going to see us through all the way to the end. So say yes and Amen.
Now we read on verse 8. Therefore you shall keep every commandment which I command you today that you may be strong, go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers to them and their descendants. A land flowing with milk and honey. For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and watered by foot as a vegetable garden. Yeah, but the land which you cross over to possess, and is a contrast, Egypt to Israel, is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. And obviously the Lord sees everything, but Israel, the land itself, is very special to the Lord. It's the land of the people of covenant. It's where Jesus going to come back, split the Mount of Olives, and establish the kingdom. So Israel to this day is still very special in human history and placement of the universe as God's design. But in this context, he's saying like, it's a great land. It's, it's not, you're, you're, you're getting, it's an upgrade. Egypt to Israel is an upgrade. You're not planting some little backyard garden in Egypt. It's a land full of milk and honey. I'm taking you from like being in bondage, working as a slave, have your little backyard tomato garden with your bell peppers or whatever, you're getting an upgrade. I'm giving you vineyards, olive groves, wells, fig trees, all stuff you never even planted. It's, it's, beyond your, it's beyond craziness for what God has for them. Oh, man, the eyes of the Lord are on it. Verse 13, it shall be that you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart, and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain, the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and, you sh- and he shuts up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. So in their context... Of course, we know through obedience, there was blessings. And through disobedience, there was consequences. Even as there is for the church, it's a little different. But there's some similar principles for sure. So basically, our God's a blessing God. Everything God wants to do is a good work. We can know from this day until we step into eternity that everything God does is good because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In his morality. Everything God does is good. There's no shadow turning with the Father of lights. Everything God's going to do in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ is a good thing. It may not be the thing you want to hear sometimes. It may not be the thing that you want to endure and go through sometimes. But the end is always a good thing. And of course, this is the idea that the Holy Spirit had through James in that first New Testament letter written early on in church history, where he said, you know, as they're going through trials and tribulations, producing faith and maturity, he said, Look to Job and know the end that the Lord intended was good. So all the trials and tribulations, they're all refining us. It's a good land. And it's not so much a good land like what your retirement looks like at the end of the journey. It's a good land when we breathe our last and step into eternity. Eyes not seen, ear heard, or entered the hearts of men what God has for us. We need to be reminded regularly that whatever we give up in this life is not, it it can't be compared in any way, shape, or form to eternity. They're not measurable. We can't take a scale and say, hey, this is what a really good life in in the human experience looks like. It looks like this, yeah, okay. So let's just use temporal wealth. Great health. For some, okay, so some people have really good health and a ton of money. Not many, but some. So let's just say, hey, you're 60, you're good looking. You got a lot of money 
and you got all these homes in Dana Point, you got this in Newport, you got the boat, you got John Wayne's old yacht, whatever, you got all this stuff. And you got good health. You're like Jack LaLanne. The younger people have no idea who that is. So this is your best life now, okay? That's a pretty good life. You got a 401k and all this. You know, government can't take it. You got Bitcoin. You got, you're spread out. You got property. You got Bitcoin. Man, you're, you're way in front of the people trying to take everything. But like Jesus said, tonight, a foolish man, you'll step in eternity and your soul will be required of you. So whose wealth will it be? But let's just say you got that. That's just temporal. And in 80 years, 20 years, you're 80. And as my dad said to me when he was 85, Joe, it's a curse of man that by the time you pay off your house and get a note from the bank, you can't enjoy it. And my dad literally said that. He had a 30-year mortgage, and he, he actually went the whole distance. He goes, what a curse. I've paid it off, but I can't even live in it. I live in an old folks' home. Yeah, because nothing's worthy to be compared to eternity and the glory to come. There is nothing that we can even think of or imagine that's the glory and the greatness God has for us through obedience and faith in this life. It doesn't just tip the scale. We need to remove the scale. And you say, this is the glory of the Lord, and that is where we are going. And it must be seen by faith. For eyes not seen, right? And faith is substance, faith, faith is the substance of things what? Not yet seen. And without faith it's impossible to please God. So we're gonna always be a minority that say, you know what, we can let go of that, we can forgive that, we can bless that, we can forgive those Christians on the cross, we can even bless those, for they know not what they do. That's a rare breed of humanity, and that's who we want to be. This day to the very end, because we're going to glory. Elijah's chariot's coming, and it's going, we're going to glory. We're singing about with Jack. I mean, David's psalm is about life, a good life with the Lord, but it, you know, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You may never see that in time, space, and matter, but you will see that in eternity. Surely goodness will follow me all the days of my life. Jesus came to give a life, abundant life. And when I look at what's going on in the world to a lot of believers in a lot of persecuted countries and difficult countries, they're not living the abundant life that we think American abundant life is. They're living abundant life, the life of the Spirit, and they're going to glory, and so are we. It's probably easier for them because they're more hungry for eternity because they don't have much in time. The more you have in time, the more it distracts from eternity. So we need to keep storing up our treasures in heaven. It's a good land that God has for us, and the land is the kingdom of God. It's heaven itself, where the Lord himself is the light. And there's no more tears or sorrows. And we praise him. And the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And the lion and the child lay down. The child plays with the cobra. It's, it's coming. Sure as I'm standing here before you on this night. April 27, 2021. Verse 18. Because what God has for us had for them is good. And because what God has for us in Jesus' name is good. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart, in your soul, and bind them as a sign on your hand, and there shall be a frontless between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children. Speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. That's, of course, very similar to what we already read back in Deuteronomy 6. So Moses is going like, I need to tell you one more time. Verse 20. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of heaven above the earth. For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast him, then the Lord will drive out these nations from before you, and you will be and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours, from the wilderness and Lebanon. 
from the river, the great Euphrates, even to the western sea, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you, and the Lord God will put the dread of you and the fear upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. And behold, I set before you today blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you do not know. Now it shall be when the Lord your God brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessings on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan, toward the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal, besides the terebinth tree of Moreh? For you will cross over the Jordan, go in to possess the land which the Lord your God has given you, and you will possess it and dwell in it, and you shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I set before you today. So Moses lays out this whole thing again, one more time. From the top, this is what you're going to do when you get there. And when you get there, you're going to see two hills. One is green and one is brown. And God's predetermined from the foundation of the world that that green hill reminds you of the blessings when you obey, and that brown hill reminds you of the curses and the consequences when you do not. So when you look at those mountains, you come into land, you look at those two mountains that are opposite, like one somehow gets the rain going this way and the other side doesn't, it's like the dry side. You look at those mountains, you have to ask yourself when you look at those mountains, what do I want my life to be? This green mountain or this barren mountain? He's given them a visual. And this green mountain, we actually have pronounced the blessings of the Lord upon it. And this brown mountain, we've actually pronounced the curses. So every time we look at these mountains on a road trip, uh, uh, going for a walk, whatever, we'll be reminded that there are blessings and there's fruit and there's good things where all the promises are yes, yes, where the green mountain is. And there are consequences and there's chastening and there's death wherever rebellion is. So we stay away from the barren mountain and we move toward the green mountain. Amen? We all make choices. We're making good ones. Let's make more good ones and less bad ones. Amen.